Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello, and welcome to the Neil Before Pod interview segment. I'm your host Craig, and I had the recent privilege of talking to Victor Cook, the producer and supervising director of one of my personal favourite shows, The Spectacular Spider-Man. Listen as we talk about him, his career, and what he has planned for the future. So I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Victor Cook, producer of one of my favourite cartoons of all time, Spectacular Spider-Man. How are you doing? Doing great. Nice to be here. Producer's the right title, isn't it? I I was a supervising producer and a supervising director on The Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, and I developed it along with Greg Wiseman. He handled uh, his area was all the, the writing duties and my area was all the visuals. And, oh. uh, and we, we came together in post. Nice. So before we get on to that, I mean, I'm sure we'll have time for that later. Just a bit about yourself. So how did you get your start in the, the industry uh, that you're in and, you know, what what did you? What inspired you to go into the kind of animation side of things? Oh wow! You know, I I, I grew up in an Air Force brat. My dad was uh, in the U.S. Air Force, so I moved around a lot all over the states and also uh, overseas and Okinawa and Japan. And I, I grew up a fan of comic books and cartoons, TV cartoons, because they hardly ever take took us to the movies. So I I, I was a '60s kid, and I grew up on. Hanna Barbera action cartoons and Marvel and DC comics, and uh, I just loved to draw. And uh, my heroes were Jack Kirby and Charles Schultz. So I think I always imagined myself becoming a comic strip artist or a comic book artist, and uh, and that's kind of what I did in my free time with my buddies. And when I got to junior high and high school, I did you know, did the campus newspaper comic strips, and in college and so forth. And uh, I was in a life drawing class in college my freshman year. And in those classes, you uh, there's, there's a nude model and everyone's drawing the, the figure and playing with light and shadow and, you know, and trying to be realistic. And, um, and, uh, and I was always doing stuff like turning the face into a monster or putting a cape on the character or horns or things like that. And a lot of art teachers don't like it when you do that. But I got lucky, this art teacher thought it was really cool and she could see the direction that I wanted to head to. And she did say that one of her former students had gone off to work for Hanna-Barbera. Now this is like back in the mm-hmm. early 80s, by the way, just to give you some context. Um, and she gave me his name and number and said, you should look him up. And th- the thing is, and this may surprise a lot of people listening, but at, at the time I had zero interest in a career in animation. I, I wanted to be a print cartoonist. All right, and um, and uh, like I mentioned a minute ago, Jack Kirby was one of my heroes, and I read in one of his biographies that one of his first jobs was as an in-betweener at Fleischer Studios on those old Popeye and Buddy Boot cartoons, and he said he hated it because uh, he said it was like fat, working at a car factory, and the job was like you know somebody draws a hand over here to the left. And then that, then you see that hand over to the right. His job was to do it in the middle, so you see that motion, right? Yeah. And I, and ever since I read that, I thought I, I have no interest in that. But then, cut to maybe five years later, after I uh, had been working in Orange County for magazines and newspapers and trying to sell comic strips, I finally thought, you know, maybe I should <laughs> see if I could uh, look up this guy in animation because I hadn't sold a comic strip yet. And um, by then. Uh, he was no longer at Hanna-Barbera, but he had turned me on to uh, uh, these classes at the Animation Guild. And uh, I took a few of those. The teacher said Filmation was looking for animators. And I went down there and I took this test of He-Man and She-Ra jumping and pulling their swords out. And um, I got there at 9 in the morning and I finished at noon. And I was really nervous and I was kind of beating myself up on the way home. Like, why did I rush it? And uh, but when I got home, I got a phone call and they said I had done an eight hour test in three hours. And when could I start? And that's how I first got my foot in the door in animation. And um, and at that studio, they you know, these days at TV animation studios, everybody's mixed up. You, you know, a storyboard guy might be sitting right next door to a background painter or right next door to a writer. 
But back in those days, it was like, you know, it was really separated by departments. So like the bottom floor of Filmation was all the ink and painters. The next floor was in-betweeners. The next floor was layout artists. And the top floor was the storyboard artists and the directors. And, uh, you know, I was given a tour when I first started. And as soon as I saw the storyboard department and saw storyboards, which were like three panels on a page, they reminded me of comic strips. And I thought, I want to be a storyboard artist. And so I started taking classes on the side to, to get me there. And uh, anyway, that's really how I got my foot in the door. And that's how I got into storyboards. And the storyboard job got me in at Disney. Um, and again, this is all it just sounds like pure luck the way I'm saying it. But at Disney, my first show was Tellspin as a storyboard artist. And the producer <laughs> classic. had given this. Yeah, he had given this pep talk to the crew about, hey, everyone should learn everyone's jobs. So you know everything there is to how to make it, making these shows, storyboard guys, learn what the production people do, production people, you know, learn what the writers do, et cetera. And, you know, I, I was so fresh and new and like a puppy dog that I just took it all to heart. I didn't realize not everybody else did, but I did. And I immediately signed up for a UCLA extension class in animation writing. And I, um, produced some samples in there and I uh, and a few of them were based on Darkwing Duck which was the <laughs> show after Tellspin that I got yeah. onto and I overheard some writers in the hallway saying hey we just sold a, a bunch more seasons to ABC and Disney Afternoon we need stories and I said hey can I show you what I did in class and they they liked it and they told me to write it and uh, uh, and uh after I wrote that script, the executive producer of the show came knocking on my door and asked me, had I ever thought about directing someday? Because he liked my storyboards and he liked that I wrote a script. He thought I understood storytelling and visual storytelling. And and that was the beginning of Disney thinking of me as a director. So, yeah, I did not set out to get into animation, but that's how I got into animation. It does sound like Disney were very supportive of new talent as well. Um, I remember reading anecdotes about Gargoyles in particular, which is another favourite of mine where they encourage the animation team to do essentially what you said there. you know. And um, So that, that sounds great that they were able to give people the opportunity to just learn as much as they could while they were working on stuff. That sounds really cool. Yeah, like right uh, after I started, they started a storyboard trainee program, which was literally, I think, about six months after I was there. And uh, so they were like recruiting people and training them into it. Um, I, I came in as a revision artist and uh, and thought I would be doing that for a couple of years before getting a chance to do full-fledged storyboards. And somebody on, on one of the crews of Telespin left, and they just had me fill his slot temporarily to see how I would do. And they liked my board, and that's how I became a storyboard guy uh, at Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they had this training program later, and uh, it was a great place to work. It was a great place to learn. Cool. And so you've done various roles on on various shows. What are the kind of major differences uh, between these different roles, and what changes um, what changes when you do these different things on different shows, or is it all kind of part of the same machine, and you you stick your oar in everywhere anyway? Uh, it's it's different, you know. When I was at Filmation, I was an in betweener. I was ironically doing that job I described earlier that Jack Kirby did not like. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm doing that middle drawing, right, to make the thing move. Um, and so your focus is on that, making sure it's going to flow and it's on model and the line quality. You're really just sort of a piece of that scene only, right? That's yeah. your focus. When I got into storyboards, uh, it was so much more uh, of a different way of thinking because you are like a director in a, in a sense because you're coming up with the shots, you're deciding when it's going to be a close-up. You're deciding how the character is going to act and be posed. Uh, but you're only doing that for the section you're storyboarding on, and, and you are doing it only in black and white. And all the music and sound is only what you hear in your head other than the, the actor's recording. But it is sort of the training ground to become to direct. Um, when I became a director, it was everything I've already just described to you, but then it would but it'd be the whole episode. Yeah. And now you're involved in color. And now you're involved in, well, what will the character actually be designed to look like? What will the location be designed to look like? Um, you are planning things while you're boarding for later now as a director, like where are you going to put a sound effect in? And 
the kind of music you imagine? Um, are you going to play out a chase scene uh, longer because you imagine music later? And you're just working with more people. You know, as a as a storyboard artist, I was really only working directly with the director above me and maybe the storyboard artist next to me. Mm-hmm. And as a director, you're working with every storyboard artist, every designer. You're at the recordings. You're working with the writers. Uh, you're working on the whole thing. Uh, and then when you get a chance to produce, if you're going to be a creative producer, which I got that opportunity uh, on uh, the last uh decade or so it's everything a director does but beyond now you're involved in hiring the music composers you're involved in hiring the overseas animation studios you are involved in the casting process and if you're developing the show as well you are now deciding the rules and the look of that show as opposed to implementing something that's set forth for you you know like when i was at disney a lot of those shows were spinoffs from movies um, like say uh, the legend of Tarzan, for example, it was literally, you know, based on the movie that came out. So from an art direction and tone and character, it was set by the movie. And our job was just to kind of carry it out. When I was on the spectacular Spider-Man, even though the character had been around since the 1960s, it was like, but we had to decide, well, what will our version be and what yeah. will it look like? Cool. So then it sounds like you've got some great uh, experience just doing different things. So, uh, yep. Jack of all trades, really cool. Uh, it's interesting to hear about how these things come together as well, because obviously when you watch the finished product, you don't, you know, you don't appreciate how many things have to go in, how many elements have to come together to get that image on screen that moves and talks and and all that stuff. Yeah, so it's, it's a really lot, cool. Lot, together, lot, of, lot of lot of lot of lot of lot of puzzle pieces, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, and everybody has to sort of be working together and in sync, and all the pieces have to come together. Uh, to make that final thing that you watch on TV. Yeah. So when you're not working, uh, do you watch any kind of film, TV yourself, any other animation or live action stuff? And what are you kind of most looking forward to or what do you follow? Uh, You know, I am a pop culture movie buff, art movies, popcorn movies. It was any kind of movie I love. I just love to watch movies. Um. And uh, uh, so I'll watch all the blockbusters, but I'll also watch uh, the, the more serious stuff. Um, so I probably go at least at least at least three weekends a month. I'm at the movies because <laughs> um, uh, I love it, and, I, and I'm still learning. You know, when you're watching the movies, I'm just sort of letting it wash over me and enjoying it as entertainment, like anybody else. But yeah. you know, by osmosis, you're sort of like absorbing. Um, what, what you're seeing, it's all, it's like film school for me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as TV, you know, because I'm, you know, you know, I'm reading scripts and I'm making animatics and editing cartoons. It's, it's like you're just always immersed in it. That's I tend to have kind of two types of TV when I come home. One is like I just channel flip. <laughs> You know, I don't really stand with yeah. thing, and it's like weird things like oh, the Food Network or HGTV, <laughs> where it's not really a you know a, a scripted uh, storyline. It's just sort of like you know, let's watch these people shop for a home, or let's watch them <laughs> upgrade this house, or those kind of things. Uh, but there are uh, shows I will get wa- get hooked on and just kind of stay with, you know. So like Westworld was one of them. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it just came back. You know, The Walking Dead. Uh, I think I got into that by its fourth, third or fourth season. So I've been kind of still following that. Um, Netflix. You know, what's great about that is I can kind of binge them all in a couple of nights. So, you know, Lost in Space was another recent one that I got into. I still haven't seen that. Not a time, but it's on the list. Yeah. High on the list. I want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you say you see all the films. So are you kind of looking forward to anything or what are your big highlights this year uh, so far there's been some notable uh, stuff what, what, like what am I looking for you mean I'm looking yeah, forward to I'm, I'm looking, looking forward, forward to, to next, um, uh, yeah I'm looking forward to the next Avengers movie <laughs> you know <laughs> premiere is quite near you tonight I believe yeah so I'm looking forward to that because uh, I've been definitely following the Marvel movie universe since uh, you know Iron Man yeah uh which was, you know, really literally almost right after we started on the spectacular Spider-Man, too. You know, the show came out in 2008, but we started working on it in 2007. 
Yeah, um, it's it's just a juggernaut that won't stop, you know. And it's, I, I mean, I love it. I can't wait for the Avengers movie, so I'll be seeing that this um, this week when it comes out. Uh, in terms of films this year, what are your kind of big highlights? You know, there's, as I said, there's been some notable stuff. Um, a Quiet Place was my recent highlight. I thought it was a great showcase of visual storytelling, which is you know what you've been talking about um, so far. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're so, uh, not alike. I would say like, I like Dunkirk, mm-hmm. you know, I like the, the way, uh, the director played with sound in that and in, in the feel and the vibe of it. But I also liked, um, oh my God, what's the one that just won best picture by Guillermo del Toro? Shape of Water. Yeah. Shape of Water. Yeah. I really like that one too. You know, really, you know, uh, was a great fantasy and, yeah. Uh, so, you know, something that was kind of real and something that was kind of fantasy, I liked them both. Cool. Um, so you mentioned Netflix. You have something on Netflix at the moment, uh, Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters. Um, so kind of how did that come about? It's, it's quite an old character, so it's a modernization of it. I'll confess I haven't actually seen the show yet, although I'm not sure it's available in the UK. I don't think it is. Maybe it is. You can correct me on that. But, um, I, certainly I don't know. <laughs> But certainly it's on Netflix, and you've been tweeting out about it quite a lot. So how did all that begin? Well, you know, Hasbro, the, you know, they own the property. And you're right, it's based on that old uh, sort of novelty toy that came out in the late 70s. The the big, the muscle man, like, you know, like what was his job, by the way, that old Stretch Armstrong? You know, he looked like a bodybuilder or some guy who hung, hung yeah. on the beach. But anyway, it was just like this novelty toy that kids like pulled and stretched until – the corn syrup popped out. Uh, uh, you didn't really play with that figure like you would like a G.I. Joe or a superhero action figure because there was no personality or storyline to it. But but Hasbro, you know, they own Transformers, they own My Little Pony, and they own a lot of things, and they've been turning it into TV shows and movies, and Stretch Armstrong was something that they've been wanting to do too. But I think the problem was what we just said. It, there was really never a storyline or a personality to the character. It, he, he was just sort of this novelty toy, almost like like a frisbee. You know, it's just something he played with. It was an yeah. it, right? Um, but they had been working on it for a while. It was in development as a movie for a while. There was some animation development. This is all before I came along. Um, and I really got the job, I think, due to my work on The Spectacular Spider-Man. The, uh, the head of development, Michael Vogel, was uh, our exec at Sony when, when I was doing Spider-Man and by this, by the time I got contacted, he was at Hasbro and helped launch Hasbro studios. And so he gave me a call and, um, and I have to confess, I wasn't really excited at first cause I thought, Oh, it's going to be that visual of that old toy. And like, it's, you know, maybe some, uh, uh, kind of a silly thing. Um, but what he said was, no, we're just going to keep the name. And, of course, he has to be able to stretch, but that's the only thing that has to be kept. <laughs> it's, a, it's a blank slate to create whatever you guys want to do. Um, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's a blank slate to create a brand new superhero <laughs> universe, you know. And that, that's exciting, you know. It's yeah. exciting to, you know, work on these Marvel or DC things, you know, for sure. But to be able to kind of do something brand new, that just leaves the door like wide open. And uh, so I got more and more excited uh, about it. And um, uh, they also brought in these two writers, Doc White and Kevin Burke, and we got to work uh, developing the show. And um, we decided to make them teenagers, make sure they all three had completely different personalities and sort of slightly variations of the stretching power. And, um, and because this wasn't based on any already – comic book that was created from the 60s it's like there were th- things you can do with it if there was something you've always wanted to do so in my case you know i really wanted to see like a multi-ethnic lead cast you know i was so sort of affected by star trek as a kid and seeing that vision of the future and i'm like well the future's now and if you go to new york city or chicago or la it's uh, it's very multi-ethnic, and so uh, so hopefully you'll get a chance to watch the show. It features these four leads, four teenagers, Jake Armstrong. Uh, he has blonde hair. I wanted the homage to the old toys, so he is 
that's about the only thing from the old toy that's the same as the blonde hair. Uh, <laughs> and then he's got these two buddies, um, uh, Ricardo, Ricardo and Nathan. And Ricardo is also Omnimass. He's played by O.G. Banks. And Nathan is Wingspan. He's played by Stephen Yun, who was Glenn on The Walking Dead. And I forgot to mention, uh, Stretch is Jake Armstrong, played by Scott uh, Minville. And there's a fourth member of the team. I feel like, a, you know, for anyone who hasn't watched the show, and you include, I have to give you a spoiler. There is a character called Blind Strike, who the whole first season you think is sort of this Boba Fett type assassin bad guy. Uh, and... Uh, by the end of the season, it's revealed that it's not even it's not a bad guy, and it's also not even a guy. You know, the armor does such a good job of concealing the face and the body that when the armor comes off, it ends up being this girl at school <laughs> named Raya Dashti. Uh, so it's like so you get to just it was just a great opportunity to create something from scratch. Yeah, it sounds it, and you sort of attach it to a pre-existing property and you can do whatever you want. So you get kind of the, the best of both worlds there, I suppose. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, you get the name recognition, yeah. you know, but there is a learn, there's a learning curve for the audience, especially because the name recognition is going to be for people who remember the old toy. Yeah. You know? So if they're expecting the old toy, it, it's, it's a surprise, you know, mm. um, that it's something new. And for a kid who doesn't remember the old toy, it's just a brand new show. Yeah. And did you have any say in the casting? Um, you mentioned, you know, the names of the big. Oh yeah, we, uh, myself, the, the Kevin and Doc, and uh, the executives at Hasbro and Netflix, we all put our heads together, and we we were just really trying to think who could really embody all these different characters, cast characters in the show, and uh, we were all like pretty much in agreement on who should be who, and. And who are the right people to play these characters? You know, in addition to Scott and uh, OG and Steven and um, I forgot to say, Nazneen Contractor plays uh, Raya Dashti slash mm-hmm. AKA Blind Strike. So in addition to them, we have a character called Doctor C, played by Kate Mulgrew. We right. have this uh, guy Jonathan Rook, played by Will Wheaton. Mm-hmm. We have this uh, science teacher, Mr. Savick, played by Walter Koenig. I mean, you, <laughs> I think you're sensitive. We have a Star Trek connection there with those three guys. Um, Keith David, who is the voice of Goliath and Gargoyles, which you mentioned. That's a good Gargoyles. voice to get. He, yeah, yeah, he's uh, uh, he's one of our main characters named Kane in the show. So we got some great actors, and they really uh, have brought these characters to life. And uh, yeah, so myself and the producers and all of us had a say in uh, casting these characters. Great. Uh, and another uh, old property, uh, iconic property you've been involved in is Scooby-Doo. So were you a fan of that um, kind of growing up? And uh, what did you see as your approach for it? Did you want to homage the original or take it in a new direction or a bit of both, really? Well, I, I mean, I have to be honest. I remember the Scooby-Doo show as a kid, and I kind of enjoyed Scooby-Doo and Jabber Jaws and kind of all those types of shows. But uh, I was a superhero guy, so the Hanna-Barbera cartoons that I really liked as a kid were like the Herculoids, Space Ghost, you know, the Impossibles, yeah. uh, Adam, Up and Adam Ant, you know, um, Johnny Quest. I mean, those are the ones I really tuned in for, and. Uh, Scooby, Jabber, Jabber's other one. I just sort of enjoyed when they were on, but I didn't. I wasn't really uh, chasing after those, you know. Yeah. But you know, you stay in this business long enough. There's kind of a saying: you stay in the TV animation business long enough, eventually you're going to work on Scooby-Doo at some point <laughs> in your career. And, uh, and I was lucky with the one I got to work on. I really cannot take any credit for uh, uh, the development of the show is Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. It was Tony Cervone mm-hmm. and Mitch Watts. They had developed this and kind of came up with the concept for this one. Um, and they hired me on to be uh, a director and a supervising director to help make the show. But I loved yeah. it because it was, uh, it was, it was Scooby-Doo, but with depth, it was Scooby-Doo with an ongoing story. You know, it, it was like lost for kids uh, and the and the archetypes of the main characters, you kind of got 
you went deeper into Fred. You went deeper into Shaggy. I know it sounds silly. You went, you went deeper into uh, all the characters. And um, uh, in Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, uh, what I loved is, like, as the episodes progressed, it became apparent that, no, this is not just – the monsters aren't just people in a mask. These monsters are monsters. Yeah. And there's a real evil – a real evil, you know uh, – supernatural evil that's the cause of all this and you know it got really big it was a real epic in scope and um and uh and if you've watched the show what happens is this this show was actually is considered the prequel of the original show all right because in the very last episode of the show they everything gets solved and fixed and now they got to travel cross country to meet this professor and that's how the show ends. And if you remember the original show, it's the van just traveling from town to town. It's all yeah. the mysteries. So it was great. It was fantastic. You know, everything about it, you know, I just was awesome. The writing, the the story arc, the tone of it. Uh, I remember when we were talking about monster chases and when monsters show show would show up, uh, having talks with Tony, that uh, we really weren't going to do uh, it where people like ran in the air for five seconds, then took off or hair would <laughs> go into static. We weren't going to do those tropes. We we're going to try to do it more like, what if it was real, you know? Yeah. And, um, so we staged it that way. I mean, there was still comedy and humor in it, of course, but, but we really went for making it cinematic. Um, besides myself, there was another director named Kurt Gaeta who was known for a lot of DC, uh, superhero cartoons, and so he brought that sort of mindset to how he was going to stage it. And then uh, the art direction, you know, the character designs uh, are, you know, they're at the same time recognizably these classic characters, but they're edged up uh, just enough to make them modern. That was done by Derek Wyatt, and I feel like also his designs helped the overseas studios really be able to animate them better and keep them more on model better because they weren't all, all super rounded. Yeah. And then there was the art direction, the backgrounds is like the most beautiful background paintings I had seen in the, in a TV series, uh, art directed by Dan crawl first season, the second season by Steve Nicodemus. And, uh, besides the textures and the look of the backgrounds, it was also painted, um, for moods, you'd have like green sequences or red sequences, depending on what was going on. It was fantastic. Everything about it was was awesome. Cool. It's funny you say about working in the the industry long enough, you eventually show up in Scooby Doo. You know the the uh, supernatural proved that recently when they did their crossover <laughs> episode, which uh, which yeah. I absolutely loved, and I yeah. think it's a fan favorite already. You know, it was well, only on a couple. Since you ago. bring up that, because that's kind of the classic Scooby design yeah. uh, teamed up with Supernatural. So right, yeah, right after uh, Mr. Incorporated, we did fifty-two episodes of that. Uh, I did get the opportunity to work on the cl- more classic designed Scooby Doo, because mm-hmm. uh, that's how they do the DVDs. The DVDs are sort of always based on the classic design look yeah. and the TV shows are where they sort of ex- experiment with kind of a different art direction each time. Uh, so I got to do stage fright and a few 30 minute specials based on the classic nice. designs. Nice. Yep. Yeah. So you also directed two Hellboy movies, the, um, the animated ones, um, which is, you know, I absolutely loved them when I saw them. Um, there was kind of a lot of, a little bit of crossover with the films in terms of the voice cast and, and Del Toro was a producer on them. So what was it kind of like directing Hellboy? You know, did did you read the comics? Did you take influence from the movies? Did you bring both in? And did you do any work well, with mean, Del Toro I, himself? Yeah, I, I, love the, I love the movies. I, I, I just want to point out there were two Hellboy animated DVD movies made. I actually only directed one of them. I directed the second oh, my, one. My apologies. Yeah, yeah um, I directed the second one. That's, that's okay. I didn't work with Guillermo directly. I worked with... Uh, Tad Stones, who was the producer, and uh, Mike Magnolia was, was uh, closely involved with both of these DVDs as far as the story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the the design look of Hellboy is a little bit different from the comic books. Um, you know, going into it, I thought we were going to animate Mike Magnolia's art style, which I think would have been awesome. But, you know, sometimes there are like corporate decisions made above your head and before you get involved. And so, like I said, I came on in the second DVD. So by then, 
a lot of things were set. So I think there was some corporate decision that this would need to be have a slightly different look so they could actually make another set of toys. You know, they yeah. had the toys based on the live action movies, toys and figures based on Mike Manila's comic book. And so they saw this as up. I think I, I think the reason why they did did this is they saw this as opportunity for another set of toys. So that's why the animated designs are a bit different. And that was by Sean Galloway. And that's how I met him. And we'll talk more about him uh, 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 later, but that's how I discovered I wanted him to do Spider-Man later. Um, but but those are really fun. The, the the Hellboy I worked on, we actually after we did the animatic, it was uh, short. We were too short. Oh, right. We had to figure out a way to have it fill the time, and so uh, that's where we kind of have that backwards memento storyline happening simultaneously in the story. That kind of came out of that. To sort of fill it in more, you know. Yeah. Um, but you're right. We had the we had the original voice cast come in. Uh, Abe Sapien. It wasn't the voice of Abe Sapien. It was actually uh, Doug Jones who did the body yeah. acting for Abe. Did the voice. It's kind of strange, but that that's uh, he does uh, the vo- he, he he plays the full character in the second Hellboy film as well. Yeah. The the first yeah. one it was um, David Hyde Pierce, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty impressive. They got them all to come back to do the voices, and um, uh, it was really fun to work on. Yeah, I've, I've always liked Hellboy. It's that kind of quirky, um, slightly dark but humorous sort of thing. And you know, I'm kind of disappointed that we'll never get a Hellboy three uh, from Del Toro. But those animated movies were an interesting, different take because um, I hadn't really read the comics by that point. But I know they were a little bit more comic influenced in terms of the world and stuff. So. Um, so that was cool to see yeah, a different comic influence, and, and there was yeah. there was plans for a third, you know, um, um, but uh, unfortunately, or we only got to make the, the only two got to be made. Yeah, as often happens, I suppose. Um, so on to the main event, I guess, Spectacular Spider-Man, which is uh, hands down one of the fav- one of my favorite cartoons that I've ever watched. Uh, I loved oh, it from. First episode. I'm a huge fan of the character, so I really appreciated the way it was built and the way that uh, Peter Parker's world was was built with a modern spin on it, but still a kind of classic Stan Lee, Steve Ditko esque feel to it. You know, I really appreciated that. So, um, I mean, how were you brought into that uh, onto that project, and were you a fan of that character to begin with? You mentioned Jack Kirby, who well, did a bit of work in Marvel, you know, back in the day. Yeah, huge, huge Spider-Man fan. I mean, I'm old enough to where I was five-year-old kid when that original cartoon came out. So I'm always like, you know, singing that song back then when I was a kid and, <laughs> and loved the comics. And when I got older, I'd go back and reread the original um, Ditko Lee, uh, you know, when it first came out. Um, I was brought called in to interview for the job probably over almost a year before it started while I was on Hellboy. Being on Hellboy actually got me the interview. Um, you know, I was at Disney for all those years before it, and and even though I worked on shows like uh, The Legend of Tarzan or uh, Buzz Lightyear Star Command, and, 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 and to me, I saw those were like action shows. Uh, I kind of quickly found out that uh, two guys, who, two people who have produced and directed on sort of DC or Marvel superhero shows, they really didn't think that a show with a talking elephant or a robot that falls to pieces uh, with all this comedy elements. They didn't really think of those as like straight action shows. I didn't really have anything like that uh, in my experience until I did Hellboy. And just being on Hellboy alone got me uh, the meeting. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then um, almost a year later, the show got started and they uh, hired me. And that's how I got on. You know, I I met with Michael Vogel, who I'd met mentioned to you earlier. Yeah. And he would just ask me, you know, visually, how would I approach it? What would I do? And um, and you got to remember, this is back in 2007. So they had done a couple of Tobey Maguire movies at this time, right? Yeah. Um, and I really, there was a couple of things. I wanted to see squash and stretch animation in an action show. All the superhero shows I had seen up till then seemed to be kind of a combination of sort of wanting the comic book illustrations to move or realistic. And uh, 
and being animated overseas, it's like it's a tall order to make that uh, look good, you know, with all that detail and muscles and stuff. So I wanted it to be stylized, and I wanted to, to have the squash and stretch. What I mean by squash and stretch is if you watch, say, Mulan, for instance, and Mulan has some kind of realer characters like uh, Captain Shang and Mulan and the bad guy, right? Yeah. Uh, but even the way they move, there's kind of a squash and stretch to their gestures and movements. I, I really wanted to see that. Uh, in a show, and I wanted to bring that uh, to it. Um, I wanted to see those original Ditko graphics in animation. Believe it or not, the half-spidey mask over the face that you'd see in those old Ditko comics had never been done in any cartoon yet. <laughs> and the, um, uh, the spider symbol that closed the episode as well, that was a common thing in the comics. Yeah, at the, time. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah the end of those comics, you'd see Peter Parker, Spider-Man walk off, all lonely and, and above the skyline you see the red sky with the webs <laughs> yeah um never done before and um i wouldn't have all that in there and then the action sequences you know the animated spider-mans i'd seen before that as much as i loved them it's like he pretty much just swung on the web line like tarza would swing on a vine and he'd web up bad guys kind of in a net but yeah. uh, or he'd punch people and I'm like, I really want to bring a Hong Kong flair to this. I really want to have this sort of a choreography with the webs and the environments to where he's like taking these guys out, almost not even having to punch them, you know. Um, and, and by the way, I feel like I've seen a lot of that now reflected in the current movies, but that's what I wanted to do back then. Mm-hmm. And I wanted uh, special color sequences. I didn't want things to be just in the daytime or just in the nighttime. I wanted to sort of have some symbolic color sequences and, um, and uh, Vogel really uh, liked hearing that. And that's pretty much how I got the gig. And then, uh, Greg and I uh, together, as we're developing the show, it's like, we really wanted to explore um, when Peter first became Spider-Man, we really wanted to update those lead Ditko when Spider-Man first appeared on the scene, but put it in the modern context of 2008, which was contemporary uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. And uh, and in doing that, you know, like I mentioned in Stretch Armstrong, we could make it multi-ethnic. One of the things we did back on the Spectacular Spider-Man is hey, this, this takes place in New York City. And yeah. you know, the, the creators created it back in the 60s. And uh, I think the only non-white character was Robbie Robertson, the assistant editor. But we said, but if this is going to look like Manhattan and New York City, we need to sort of be more inclusive. And that's why Liz Allen's Hispanic. That's why Ned Leeds is Asian, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Kenny Kingston became Kenny Kong. And uh, uh, so anyway, I'm rambling again. Sorry about that. No, no, go ahead. uh, It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. So we just, it was just an opportunity to really do what we wanted to do uh, on that. Yeah. And the diverse cast, I think, was a, was, remarked on favorably at the time as well because the kind of yeah. casual approach to diversity is always appreciated because it doesn't yeah, make a big deal I, I out of it you know it doesn't make a big deal of it and i think when the comics came out uh, i think it was just reflective of, of yeah. their, their times and their days i don't think there's anything sort of uh evil about it i think it, it just wasn't uh didn't occur was didn't occur to the creators at that time to uh change up the characters but you know we live in a modern time and um, and you can just look out the window if you're in any of these big cities, and you could see it's uh, we have all of humanity out there, and we wanted to reflect that. But we also wanted to have fun with the characters too. So another thing is we just really wanted to get into like if you're a 15 year old kid and you get the powers of Spider Man, you are having the time of your life and yeah. a blast. We wanted to see that in there. You know, I would say one of the things I missed. But I love the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, the Sam Raimi movies, but I feel like the part that was kind of missing was the Spider-Man smart alecky part when he was Spider-Man, you know. And we really wanted to have that smart aleck jokester having the time of his life uh, put in there. But also the Peter Parker stuff of he, in his real life, all these problems he's got to deal with, um, and how is he going to handle that while also taking on the bad guy at the same time? Fighting Electro, but having to be home by ten and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. That was that was the classic so, kind of storytelling, yeah. and the the stakes were associated with. Oh, he's going to win, but he's also got to get grounded. So there's that problem. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, I mean, the theme of the show, and this is uh, 
you know, Greg uh, really came up with this as he was mapping out the, the storylines, but because of it was, we start the show where Peter got bitten by the spider at the beginning of the summer before his sophomore year. Um, so he said three months, like our show starts at the beginning of sophomore year. So we, the idea is he spent the last three months as Spider-Man practicing his powers and pretty much easily putting common crooks away in jail and things like yeah. that. He never had to deal with a supervillain before in his life uh, until the Vulture and the Enforcers, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in episode one. Uh, but also, you know, his hormones are going crazy. So, and uh, and he's got these issues of trying to earn enough money and make sure Aunt May is okay. So he had to navigate high school, navigate social cliques, but he's also had to learn to take on uh, super bad guys. So the, you know, the theme of the show was the education of Peter Parker, the education of Spider-Man. Yeah, and I always loved the, the, anime, the animation style. I remember seeing early pictures of it and thinking, you know, I wasn't too sure about it to begin with, but as soon as I saw it in motion, I understood the decision because it made the fights and just any of the action just so kinetic and fast-paced and everything like that. And and it was just distinctive. You know, you look at these characters and you know exactly who they are. And, and Yeah, no, no, two faces, no two faces look alike. You know, that's yeah. the strength of Sean Galloway. You know, I saw, when I was in Hellboy, they had, had you know, he had done the concepts of designs, and by the way, Mike Magnolia handpicked Sean Galloway to do the redesigns on animated Hellboys. So All right, was okay. Mike Magnolia. He he chose the guy out of a yeah. lot of people, and um, but uh, the producer decided for uh, production reasons and make things flow. And and in Sean's experience at the time, I guess uh, the producer decided to have a more experienced designer kind of go over Sean's concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do the turnarounds, and um, but you know when I was there, I saw Sean's original concepts, and I kind of fell in love with those. And I thought, God, you know, I want that in the Spectacular Spider-Man because it's it felt animatable, like you said, it was a very unique. And um, uh, and when Sean did his first passes on some of the classic Spider-Man characters like J. Jonah Jameson and Doc yeah. Ock and Sandman, they the Vulture, it's like. They did two things at the same, a few things at the same time. One was, yeah, they felt like the classic characters, but it, but it also felt fresh, new, and modern the way it was mm-hmm. filtered through the way he stylized them. And then from an animation point of view, it's like, wow, the, the the economy of lines that it took to create those characters were few. You yeah. didn't draw every six pack muscle or every bicep or everything so it was like far less for the animators to have to in between all the time so they could focus on doing really good animation in the time they had mm-hmm. you know the biggest the big challenge was spider-man's suit right um the original 1960s spider-man show the way they sort of simplified it was if you seen the show there's only webbing on his mask yeah and the other red parts of him is just solid red so uh it doesn't really evoke the suit perfectly and then the other spider-man shows in between they draw every web so it is more true to the comic books but i feel like it doesn't move as well mm-hmm. you know the animation is a bit clunkier because you know, the animators only have so many weeks they can do it so we distilled those webs to be as few as we could but still have a web pattern you know so there's really sort of like a center line and then it just kind of spokes out twice at the bottom and twice at the top and that was enough, and uh, that's how we got this great fluid uh, squash and stretch animation to our action scenes. And you brought back his web wings as well to give a bit of extra nostalgia. Oh, yeah, we brought back yeah. his web wings. Um, uh, like, you know, that, that's just all the classic Ditko things we wanted to bring back. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and one thing I always appreciated was the kind of the setup of the action sequences as well. You know, it wasn't just him fighting. You know, he was using his intelligence. And the one I remember most fondly, you know, it's the... One of the kind of cleverest examples for me is when he's fighting the rhino uh, and he stops him by essentially making him sweat until he passes out. And that's it's not something I can recall ever having seen in the comics even. You know, it was just a completely unique way to defeat, defeat such a kind of derivative villain in a lot of ways. And uh, that, that's kind of what I liked. So it was, um, did you have a lot of say in kind of how they came about and what you were going to try I'd say, out I'd in say action a lot sequences? of that. 
I have to give credit to that one in particular that goes to uh, the writers that was like written yeah. into the script. Um, but the but the action scenes in general, I think Greg and the writers would agree, was a real combination teamwork between what was written and the storyboard artists and the directors because there was a lot not that, that a lot you saw that was not in the script, mm-hmm. but inspired by the script. So, for instance, if you remember, I'll give you an example. Episode uh, one, Spider-Man is on the rooftop fighting the Enforcers, and uh, Ox gets him in a bear hug. And in the script, Spider-Man either elbows him or kicks him in the shin somehow to break loose. And uh, we thought it would be funnier and more smart smart aleck of Peter and Spider-Man if he were to web Ox's handlebar mustache and yank on him. (laughs) <laughs> you know things like that. Yeah. You know, or uh, the the rooftop fight in the, the the prologue of episode thirteen with all the thugs in the helicopter. That was all invented by the storyboard artists. Okay. I mean, what was scripted was thugs were going to the rooftop to escape, and Spider Man beats them up. That's that's written. But what the actual choreography of what you saw, and the helicopter even taken off, and all those things, and. Uh, Maceball bullets and all this kind of stuff. It was all dreamed <laughs> up by the storyboard artist. But like I said, the situation is also inspired by what's written. Was that one a possible reference to the original trailer for the the first Spider-Man film with the uh, helicopter in the middle of the Twin Towers? Uh, I don't think so. That was actually uh, uh, an ex- the expansion of the promo we did. Yeah. We did a one-minute promo that came that we showed at 2007 Comic-Con, about nine months before the show came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so you saw a tiny bit of the rooftop thing in the promo, but the storyboard was probably like five minutes long. It was like, all, like I said, yeah. all this stuff got invented on the <laughs> board because we're all like we – were, we were really experimenting and messing around with how many ways could Spider-Man take out these thugs without actually punching him. Remember, <laughs> that's how I – pitched to Vogel how I wanted to do the show. So we just like did all these different things where he's like webbing two guys and yanking them together, their heads hit, or he looks like he's going to web you, but he shoots the web past you. So you think he missed, but what he really did was he's webbing a piece of a, uh, an air conditioning vent and yanks it off the wall, hits him in the back of the head or, you know, all (laughs) these different ideas. It was just way too much for the promo. So it just all got on the cutting room floor. Um, but I always loved it, you know, the helicopter took off, all that kind of stuff, and yeah. all, I loved it. So as we were doing the show, I had mentioned to Greg and to uh, Kevin Hopps, one of the writers, like, yeah, we got to figure out a way to stuff. It's like the best <laughs> thug. It's the best fight scene we have with Spider-Man against just thugs. we got to get into the show. And, and they came up with a way of uh, that would fit the storyline by having it in the prologue of uh, episode 13. Cool. And that yeah, was that's obviously... where it came from. It, it, it really wasn't from the movie. Yeah. Now, if you're asking, were we inspired by the movie or the comics with certain scenes that got put into the show? The answer is like yes, and the same even for the show, because even though we wanted to do our modern, updated version of the Lee Ditko years, we had every era to choose from. We had every era, the era of the comic books. We had every movie that had been made up to that time. So we could pick and choose what we want and conflate it into this high school era. Because, you know, Eddie Brock obviously didn't exist in the Lee Ditko era of the comics. Yeah. He wasn't uh, of that time. And Gwen Stacy also came later after the high school years. Mm-hmm. But we picked and chose what we liked and we um, kind of uh, merged them together to do no. the show that we wanted to do. And then you could create a mystery around Osborne as well, because everybody knows who he is. But then if everybody knows who he is. We had yeah. we de- definitely definitely had fun with that. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, Osborne and the Goblin, you know, and uh, voice actors. At least I'm piecing it all out to, to my head. You know, it's just yeah. making me think of something. Um, when we were spotting the sound effects for that promo I mentioned to you that mm-hmm. showed that summer of 2007, we had already started recording the episodes by then because we had already started storyboarding the show by then and we had cast Steve Bloom as the Green Goblin mm-hmm. and he had this distinctive laugh and this distinctive way of talking that when it came time to spot the explosion 
of the pumpkin bomb in that promo, it, it just kind of occurred to me to ask the uh, sound editor, God, do you have anything that sounds like a scream that would sound like Stephen Bloom's voice? <laughs> and, uh, and that's why whenever the pumpkin bombs explode, you have that scream that goes with it. We, yeah. we kind of fell in love with that, you know. It's very memorable. I did love that. Uh, yeah, in so terms we, of the casting. Same thing with, with where we uh, all had a say in it. Um, we had our first choices, you know, Greg and I, and, uh, but everybody had a say in it, you know, yeah. Sony and Marvel and you sort of prepare yourself that, uh, well, what if we don't agree? Are we going to have to have a big fight over this? Are we going to have to have some kind of debate? And we were like pleasantly surprised that just about every, well, every first choice that Greg and I had, um, Marvel and Sony agreed, you know, and that's how we got Josh Keaton. That's how we got all these actors, you know, and um, they're fantastic. You know, the one thing like, yeah, like we were talking about the Green Goblin, his alter ego, Norman Osborn, was played by Alan Ratchins mm-hmm. or Rations from L.A. Law at the time. That guy, his, the voice quality and the acting as Norman is amazing. I mean, that guy's never going to win any. He'll never win any Father of the Year awards. As far as the Norman Osborn character, he was great, but uh, amazing, one of the top actors. But the one thing I do remember uh, at the records is we could never really. He could never really convincingly fall. You know, if you know what I mean. So Mm -hmm. when the vulture was flying up in the sky and dropping him and trying to scare him and stuff, you know, he's falling. So you're like, ah, I didn't <laughs> never came out right when Alan uh, did it, <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, but it was fun times, really fun times working, we're working with that cast. And you had some big game, um, big guest stars, such as Trisha Helfer as black cat. She was a uh, quite an inspired choice. And the, oh, yeah. some of the actors have enjoyed further work later on. Josh Keaton's played him in a bunch of video games, and Trisha Helfer's been Black Cat a few times, I think, as well. Yeah. Well, Josh, to me, and I think a lot of fans agree, is like the, the, the definitive spectacular Spider-Man Peter Parker. He yeah. is just, he is that character. He embodies that character of that age. He yeah. was just perfectly cast. And... Um, you know, I don't know that we would have have fallen in love with uh, Peter and Spider-Man and related to his personal problems as much, if not for Josh's uh, performance. He's he's amazing. Yeah. I, I grew up in the '90s cartoons, so whenever I read a comic, I hear Chris Daniel Barnes' voice, but that's just because that's who I grew up with. But uh, Josh Keaton's yeah, performance yeah. was excellent. You know, it's and it's always yeah. great to hear him return to the character. If the show had continued in a third season, can you kind of talk a bit about what the plans were for that? I mean, it was kind of. Un- unceremoniously cancelled due to a rights issue which is a shame and it was when uh, was it when uh, Sony lost the TV rights to Spider-Man or something like that the uh, Disney just cancelled the show or whatever it was well I mean I don't want to give like any specifics of what yeah, we're going to do but yeah. we did we, but we did have plans to hopefully do 65 episodes and follow Peter all the way to high school graduation um, so you saw in the show, unlike other, I can't think of any other animated shows that have done this. Most animated shows, it's this nebulous same time of year all the time, except yeah. for that very Christmas, except for that very special Christmas episode, right? <laughs> Otherwise, it's the same time of year. We literally showed a progression of time from the first day of school, and you saw the first season go to um, New Year's Eve, I think, or New Year's. Yeah. Um, and then second season, we start right after that. It's wintertime, and we take it almost almost to spring. Uh, so that's about the speed of, that we were moving. And so we felt like if we kind of moved that we were going to – and we got to do 65 episodes, we would have went to high school graduation. I will say this, at least. We did have a spring break storyline that we wanted to do <laughs> that involved the lizard and with everybody in Florida. <laughs> and that's about the most I'll say to that. But, uh, but we did have plans. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I've noticed Greg does not uh, sort of divulge those. And so I'm going to yeah. follow suit and also not uh, talk about that, other than, other than to say what I just said. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, just in case we ever get an opportunity to revisit it, it'd be nice to be surprised and stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, was there ever any plans to bring in other Marvel characters? Because he, he very much existed in a world on his own. He was the only superhero and his the villain world was his world. But obviously with the Marvel Cinematic no, Universe. Well, you know, and- early, on, early on in development, to, to be honest, we did have ideas to have some guest stars and crossovers of other Marvel properties. But at the time, and as you even know from the movies, sometimes there are rights issues. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, so, and that includes villains. And so but I'm saying this is very, very early on in the development. So we, once we realized we couldn't do that, we said, you know, we're going to just focus on Peter and Spider-Man and his cast. Yeah. And I feel like you really got, because we didn't delve into other superheroes, uh, you really got to know these other characters. You got to know Mary Jane, you got to know Liz, you know, you got to know, um, Flash. You got to see Flash evolve, right? He wasn't just the one-note jock bully. Um, uh, so I think not. It, it was like a blessing in disguise. We uh, because we couldn't use other characters from other comics. We focus on the characters of Peter's world and universe. Um, Unfortunately, it's more than uh, we, had, we had a we had a we had a different big bad guy plan instead of Tombstone. By the way. All right. We couldn't use them, and that's why we used Tombstone. And I'm glad because I think Tombstone turned out to be like an awesome bad guy for us. Was it Kingpin by any chance? Was that the plan? I, I'm not gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, that was great bringing in the big man and changing out the identity and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's again, it's a nice surprise to people that know the material, which I always like. I always like to be surprised. Uh, the same with the Harry twist at the end of season one and then the Norman twist at the end of season two. It kept me on my toes because yeah. I was, uh, yeah, because I was I had certain expectations as a fan and then it kind of subverted them, which I always like. I don't like it when I can predict everything out of the gate, but um, certainly plenty yeah. there. So it was a great job. We, we really wanted to, you know, I mean, this was an era before Netflix and, and before, you know, binge watching shows. You know, it was an era where... Um, it wasn't always so easy to do an animated show for American TV with the continuing storyline. I mean, it is now, yeah. but just before that, it was difficult because they'd want to be able to air episodes out of order if they wanted to. And if you had a continuing storyline, it was not easy. But, um, but, but fortunately, we were able to do it. And so the show got to really be one story it was really one story one mm-hmm. long story and um and being able to do that meant we didn't have to do the typical thing where you're going to meet the bad guy before he becomes the bad guy in one episode like you meet so and so something happens to him he becomes so and so yeah and then our superhero puts so and so in jail all in one episode in our show and you know this but watching the show is you met supervillains before they were supervillains you got to know these characters for for a few episodes and in some cases almost the whole first season before they turned into uh the supervillains so uh it kind of gave more impact and more weight when that happened you know i mean that's what we tried to do with the venom and eddie brock thing is we like really established this long-time relationship between Peter and Eddie before he became Venom. So, it, so it'd be a little heartbreaking at the same time that it happened, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, that was definitely one of the draws of it—the kind of pseudo serialization, still episodic, but had serialized elements. So, yeah, um, kind of gives your credit to your audience with that intelligence to follow it and get invested in the world as well. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, love that. I mean, I mean, honestly, when you when you say that, like the audience, we, you know. We never thought we were making a cartoon for, say, older people. Yeah. Um, we thought of it as we're making an all ages cartoon. And it, it basically, in the spirit of the comics of the 60s, you know, like these days, what kind of makes me a little sad these days is you go into a comic book shop and comic books of some of your favorite characters tend to be written for teenagers or young adults or Mm -hmm. not kids is what i mean it's inappropriate for kids some of it yeah uh, because it kind of gets into r-rated territory you know because that's how they're defining it to be mature right Mm -hmm. um and then there'll be a kid section and the kid section comics they're not 
they're written in a way that aren't going to be that interesting for you and me. But the magic and the beauty of those Marvel comics of the 60s is they were written for everybody. So if you were a five-year-old kid and you read a Hulk or a Spider-Man comic, maybe you didn't get everything, but you loved it. And it wasn't in a, and what was in there was not inappropriate for you. So it wasn't like there was, you're doing something wrong having this comic book. Yeah. But the stories and the interplay between the characters uh, was also at a level that if you were a college kid, a teenager, a young adult, you were really into it like any other fiction you had read. So it was like for everybody. Um, and that's how we approached the show. We really didn't want to make it, no, it's only for six-year-olds. Yeah. We wanted six-year-olds to be able to watch the show and love the show, but we didn't want to write to where it's only written for a six-year-old. And um, I think that's how, why it still stands up today. It's definitely the right approach. Absolutely. Yeah, because um, I like watching cartoons and I like the smart ones, you know. So um, that's why I didn't like Ultimate Spider-Man as much because I felt like it was skewing younger than me. But uh, Spectacular was just my uh, perfect Spider-Man experience, you know. And I was kind of looking for that for years myself. So yeah, uh, right. definitely like, the right approach. How did you get the song? Uh, I've I've always wanted to know that. Well, you know, we myself, I mentioned I was such a huge fan of the '60s Spider-Man and. Yeah. One of the biggest fun parts of that show was actually that theme song. So we all loved that song. We all wanted a theme song of our own that was like that. And uh, uh, that people would hum and be iconic and, and we could do a great main title sequence too. And so we auditioned a few different bands and composers. And uh, again, it was one of these situations where again, myself, Greg and Marvel and Sony, we all were in unanimous agreement on uh, Tinderbox uh, for that theme song. And, uh, you know, I, I still love the original Spider-Man theme song, but I feel like ours is just as iconic. Anyway, that's how we found them. And that's why we decided to do it, too. We didn't, we didn't want just music. Yeah. We really wanted the theme song. And then all the kind of incidental music seems like it was inspired by that song as well. You know, the, the kind of uh, that rock soundtrack. Um, throughout the yeah the swinging scenes, well, you know, and fight scenes. yeah the, the 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 score of the show which you know not the theme song part but the score of the show was by the, done by dynamic music partners okay. who they're famous for working on batman the animated series and a lot of different superhero shows um but yeah they were fantastic uh because they you know you watch the show and it's like every villain had their own thing yeah every villain had their own thing and Spider-Man, of course, had his own, not main title theme, but his in-the-show theme. And um, it was great. So they all, you know, they played with different instrumentations, different melodies. It, it was it was really great. And the song was so I iconic that even Ox was humming it in one episode. <laughs> exactly. That was a nice little We're touch. all humming it. We're yeah. all humming it at work. It was great. A, break, a breaking of the fourth wall within almost, you know, the, it was a nice touch, that. Um, so just kind of a last point, uh, what are your kind of dream projects or ideas that you have for the future? You know, what's kind of next for you? Uh, well, you know, dream projects, there's uh, something, there's a, there's a comic book I did with Greg uh, a few years back called Mechanation. I mean, that is something I'd love to see be turned into an animated TV series. Um, and then I have a few others, which I cannot say on the podcast because they're still, uh, they're not out there in the public yet. Okay. Uh, to pitch, uh, but as far as the uh, next project that I'm working on, I'm I'm doing a Disney Junior show. All right. Tots. Mm -hmm. It's a CG show and um, it's comedy, and it will uh, premiere sometime in uh, spring or summer of 2019. And so I'm looking forward to everybody seeing that. Um, there's still another season of Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Spiders that's coming on later this year. So I'm looking forward to everybody seeing that. Oh, nice. Cool. Um, so a few things in the pipeline then. That's always good. Okay. Yeah. So final question. We ask this of everyone who comes on the, the interview uh, segment. Um, since we're a comic book inspired website and, you know, nerdy podcast, we always ask what superpower do you have and why? Wow. You know, um, I think I'd like, to have the superpower of flying 
a That's levitating popular one. flying. Yeah. You know, I just, that would be just so cool, you know. And I don't mean like with a jet pack or something, but more like the Superman way of flying or the, or the Peter Pan way of flying where <laughs> you could just fly. And by willpower, you make yourself go wherever you're going to go and you land. It's like, you yeah. know, that, that would be so awesome. I guess yes, a popular one. A lot great. of people like it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very great, much. Be a great way to commute. Be a great way to commute to work, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> might have to wrap up warm if, depending on how you're going. But yeah, watch watch out for thin air and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you here and the kind of back. Uh, backstage secrets about all these kind of cartoons and things you work on. It's been very illuminating. I've absolutely loved uh, this conversation. So thank you very much. Oh, it's great to be here. I love talking about these shows. They're so fun to work on. And uh, it makes us all very happy that you and everybody out there, the fans still, still love these uh, shows. Makes it feel all the hard work was well worth it. Definitely. Well, thank you very much. And all the best for your future projects. Thank you. That was my discussion with Victor Cook. A big thank you to him for taking the time to appear on this podcast and talk to me. Thanks to YouTuber Nstens1117 for the supplied music. If you like what you heard, then hit that subscribe button on iTunes, YouTube, or any major podcasting app. And join us on the next Neil Before Pod.